Hello, friends and colleagues, and welcome to episode 75 of Dermosphere, the podcast by dermatologists, for dermatologists, and for the dermatologically curious. I'm one of your hosts. My name is Luke Johnson. I'm a pediatric dermatologist and general dermatologist with the University of Utah. And joining me, of course, is... This is Michelle Tarbox. I'm an associate professor of dermatology and dermatopathology at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in beautiful, sunny Lubbock, Texas. Michelle, you have yeah. to go to the airport soon. I do have to go to the airport soon. Are you going for business or pleasure? I am going for a good friend's wedding. No offense to Lubbock, Texas, but maybe you're going for pain. <laughs> no, one of the nice things about the Lubbock airport, I remember from living there for three years, is that you can leave to get your flight like an hour beforehand and still be fine. You just like park in the parking lot and walk across the street. So yep, basically there are nice things about having a small airport. But that means we're going to have a little bit of a shorter episode than normal so that you can go to your best friend's wedding and make a major motion picture about it. <laughs> and we're recording this. A few weeks before the AAD, but when it comes out, you will also be getting on a plane soon to go to the AAD. In Boston, in person, for the first time in a while, so that's exciting. I will not be going to the AAD because I will be going to a friend's wedding. All these friends getting married. I know, it's spring, love is in the air. You know. So if you see Michelle walking around, she might be wearing a Dermosphere pin or something, and she will hopefully be carrying around a bunch of Dermosphere pins pens and pins and she would love to give them away and she might force them upon you if you come up and say hello <laughs> also we have a collaboration with our friends at top derm so if you listened to our last bonus episode you will know that top derm is a company that makes video games to help train doctors in various fields they're usually available on mobile devices like tablets and there's a dermatology game called top derm and recently michelle and i collaborated with the folks at level x to create some content for it and we are now known in the top derm world as derm heroes <laughs> i'm so excited about this michelle deserves the title i do not but regardless oh, okay. they have created artwork showing us as superheroes and they also have a contest in collaboration with us again at their booth at the aad michelle since you're going to actually be there. Do you want to tell our listeners about this contest? Thanks. I'd be happy to. So um, Top Derm is sort of a trivia-based game for dermatologists to help reinforce our knowledge base. It is not an AI bot collecting our souls and data and things like that. Um, it's put together by dermatologists for dermatologists for the education of people in our field. And it's really a lot of fun. It's a great platform. Um, we wrote some questions in our module about some of the things we cover in Dermosphere. And actually, one of the things I'm going to talk about today, which is trichoscopy. So if you want to do extra well at the challenge, then you might want to listen to this episode and maybe even look at the article because the pictures in it are amazing. But um, the prize for the person who does the best at this contest is actually going to be getting to be turned into their own derm hero. So you want to talk about that, Luke? Yeah. So this is going to be at the AAD Top Derm booth this year, 2022. So if you're listening to this after that, sorry, hope you participated and did well. But before then, you can go participate in this contest. I'm honestly not sure exactly what the contest is going to be, but I'm assuming it's going to be answering questions of some kind or another. The winner gets their own artwork made of them as a superhero, plus gets invited to be on Dermosphere. Woo! So we're looking forward to seeing who wins that contest. 
We are also looking forward, as always, to discussing some of the latest dermatology research. And I have got our first article this time. It is out of the JID, the Journal of Investigative Dermatology, and is about the disease slash condition known as DRESS, drug reaction with eosinophilia and systemic symptoms, which is also known as DIS. Do you pronounce it DIS or DISH, Michelle? Uh, I think I usually put the H in there, but it's sort of like an afterthought, like DISH. It's like a soft DISH. D-I-H-S, drug-induced hypersensitivity syndrome. They basically mean the same thing. Drug-induced hypersensitivity syndrome is probably more accurate because people don't always have eosinophilia, but duress is just sort of stuck in our lexicon and rolls off the tongue a little bit better. Anyway, this article is called Risk of Progression to Autoimmune Disease and Severe Drug Eruption, colon, Risk Factors and the Factor-Guided Stratification. The authors are out of Japan and include Yoshiko Mizukawa and Tetsuo Shiohara. So this group in Japan is like super into dress slash dish and has longitudinal data on a bunch of patients, including blood work. This cohort that they describe here is 55 patients that they have followed for many years, about 18 years. So they've been looking at this for a long time and following people and collecting their blood. Their ages are 14 to 88 I assume those were their ages at the beginning of this 18-year period because it would be pretty impressive to start following an 88-year-old and still be following them 18 years later. But it's Japan. (laughs) We know people are long-lived over there, so what do I know? So there was a lot of cool stuff in this article, including some stuff that I didn't know about dress. So, for example, Michelle, did you know, before reading this article, that about 10% of patients with dress go on to develop autoimmune disease. I did know that because I've actually, well, I have sadly learned that from patients I've cared for that were properly monitored and followed. It's just some patients will have as a sequela of the condition that they develop an, a, an autoimmune disease. Well, embarrassingly, I did not know it. One of many reasons that you're the derm hero and I am just <laughs> a pretender, though they usually don't develop this autoimmunity for years afterward. And by the way, the background rate of autoimmunity, do you know this one, Michelle? What the background rate of autoimmunity is? Yeah, like in the general population. I would presume it was somewhere around 1% to 2%, but I'm not sure. They say it's 5 to 8%. Oh, that's pretty so high. It might be different depending on your definitions of true autoimmunity. Mm-hmm. By the way, that bell in the background is the uh, pimping bell, meant to highlight mm-hmm. especially question-unworthy or pimpable content. So this paper here that we're talking about today aimed to figure out some risk factors that predicted somebody's potential development of autoimmune disease in the future if they have duress. And the authors even developed a scoring system to identify high-risk dress patients. So, by the way, there are now at least three different scoring systems out there for dress. There's one for diagnosis, which you can get from, like, the severe cutaneous drug reaction database to determine the likelihood that what you're seeing in front of you is dress or not. And then this same group that we're talking about today, a few years ago, published a scoring system for the severity of dress. And now they have created a new scoring system that predicts somebody's risk of autoimmunity. So if you are into dress and scoring systems, then boy, howdy, you are in good shape. So as a reminder, dress, we know, is a drug reaction, right? Dress stands for drug reaction with eosinophilia and systemic symptoms. But there's probably other stuff at play as well. So it may be due, at least in some cases, to reactivation of human herpes virus 6, also known as HHV6. 
reading about this in residency, I was under the impression this was somewhat controversial. This group seems to take it as sort of a proven fact that at least some cases are due to HHV6 reactivation. The human herpes viruses come in a number. There's like eight of them. There might be more, but we have well-defined eight of them. HHV6 perhaps causes pityriasis rosea and maybe some like generic cold virus type symptoms, but otherwise maybe doesn't do very much of interest except potentially be related to the development of dress when it reactivates. So remember, all the human herpes viruses like to just hang around in your neural ganglia somewhere, and so various things can cause them to reactivate. And apparently, I did not know this either, but reactivation of EBV, Epstein-Barr virus, can also be seen in dress. EBV DNA can be detected in the sera of patients with dress, though I don't know if this is thought to contribute to the clinical manifestations. What do you think about that one, Michelle? I think it's a fascinating idea. EBV is such a noisy virus. Like it can cause so many different kinds of presentations in patients from, you know, hematolymphatic malignancy to autoimmune disease. It is a very interesting virus. It's true. I don't know if it contributes to dress or not, but at least yeah. if people have dress that you can right. find their EBV DNA in them. Yeah, because I mean, is it a side effect of whatever allowed, you know, is, is it a side effect of immune dysregulation and, you know, the EBV just creeps out or is it causing the problem? It's a very interesting question. It's a good question. I don't know that we have an answer. But here's another thing I didn't know about dress. Some patients can develop severe sequelae one to three months later, which, again, this group has previously described. The most concerning being another viral reactivation, CMV, cytomegalovirus, which can even lead to death. Major bummer. Yeah. So in 2019, as I said, this group published a scoring system to grade the severity of dress, basically the likelihood that a patient could go on to develop one of these more severe sequelae. So in this cohort of 55 patients that they followed for 18 years, 16% of them developed autoimmune disease, though not until a median of about eight years later. There were many different types of autoimmune disease that they developed. Alopecia, thyroid disease, hepatitis, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis... And these patients almost universally, all but one of them, developed autoantibodies. So again, this group was following these patients for years, drawing their blood, checking for various antibodies, I guess. And these patients who went on to develop autoimmune disease developed autoantibodies years in advance of developing the overt symptoms of the disease. And usually those autoantibodies developed within three years of dress. They had another group of patients who had dress and also developed antibodies, but never developed autoimmune disease, hmm. at least not yet. And those autoantibodies were of various sorts, including ANA, the, the thyroid peroxidase, anti-DNA antibodies, for example. So let's talk about the scoring system. So they crunched a bunch of numbers and found the stuff that puts you at risk for being more likely to be somebody who developed autoimmune disease. Though, of course, this is sort of done retrospectively, so keep that in mind. So they divide these parameters into the acute phase of dress, which is like when you develop symptoms in a week and a half, 10 days or so into the course, and then the subacute phase, which is like 10 days to 31 days after you start developing the symptoms of dress. So in the acute phase, numbers of lymphocytes is important. So if you have over 2,400, that gives you a point. Liver dysfunction is measured by ALT. Is it 80 to 300? You get a point. Is it over 300? You get two points. And then they also measured stuff that I normally don't think of measuring in dress, serum levels of IL-2 and IL-4. If those are both low, you get two points. And by the way, high risk is considered four points or above. Subacute phase, 
So this might have some clinical implications because if the patient received pulse dose steroids, they describe it as pulse prednisone, or IVIG, that gives you points. Hmm. So you might feel like you'd might not want to treat patients with those things if you can. Pulse prednisone gives you one point. IVIG gives you two. And the authors discuss at some length about why this might be. This business of your immune system being dysregulated and then rebounding might have a bearing on whether or not you develop autoimmune disease. So apparently, first, your regulatory T cells, your Tregs, are kind of dysfunctional. And your immunoglobulin levels are low. But then they come bounding back. And the more bounce they have when they bound back, apparently the more likely you are to develop autoimmune disease. So the authors speculate that that's why patients treated with IVIG, who just got a whole chunk of immunoglobulins slammed into their vessels, might have an increased risk of developing autoimmune disease. It's related to this immunoglobulin thing. Interesting. If your ALT continues to go up in the subacute phase, you're more at risk. Increasing globulin, you can measure it specifically, just like I said, puts you at risk. And then if you find the EBV and or the HHV6 DNA in your sera for at least three months, then that also gives you points. So those are how you might score patients, whether or not they're at increased risk of developing autoimmune disease. What you do with that information, I suppose, is up to you. The authors have a few interesting uh, quotes here that they point out. So they say, for example, long-lasting EBV and HHV6 reactivation. When combined with a rebound increase in globulin synthesis at the subacute phase after severe liver damage Mm. could be associated with development of autoimmune disease. Mm -hmm. And these data suggest that the rapid recovery of globulin synthesis and or IVIG administration is the major driving force for progression to autoimmune disease. They say you can easily measure immunoglobulins in ALT. It's simple. It's non-invasive. It's a clinical biomarker. And finally, the identification of biomarkers like this that predict future development of autoimmune disease suggests the potential utility of these cytokines as preventive measures. So, for example, if we give people more IL-2 and IL-4, is that going to help prevent them from developing autoimmune disease? Is it going to make their course better overall? So what do we do with this information? Well, their recommendations are we recommend long-term follow-up, one to three years after resolution, of patients with DRESS, even if they are well with complete resolution of disease. Patients with DRESS should be followed closely for signs, symptoms, and laboratory evidence of developing autoimmune disease. They don't say don't treat people with IVIG or pulse prednisone, but I feel like that's something else you might want to take out of this data. Of course, there are limitations. This was a relatively small group, though they point out the largest group to date with the longest time window, and it's not been prospectively or externally validated. So the next step here is to start using the scoring system on patients with DRESS in multi-institutions, and then follow them for 10 years, I guess, to see if they develop autoimmune disease. I think that that connection between autoimmunity and DRESS can't be overemphasized enough, um, especially in patients that have any other risk factors for it. And I have seen some really significant autoimmunity uh, emerge in the kind of sequela of, of an episode of dress, including like really bad case of dermatomyositis and some, you know, of course, most commonly it's going to be autoimmune thyroid disease, but it can be quite catastrophic. It's really annoying. If I had dress and got over it, I would be pissed off to know I have to be worried for the next 10 years that I was going to develop some autoimmune disease. I suppose if I was followed for three to four years and they didn't detect any autoantibodies in my serum, then maybe I could feel reassured. Yeah, it is It is an event to have this condition. So I always um, you know, ask, ask my residents to be very aware of 
all the warning signs of dress. And I know we've talked previously on this podcast about some of the physical signs of dress, including the facial edema, the tendency of it to like skin folds, and of course the changes in liver function tests. But man, that is a, it's a tough condition. It's hair raising, you might say. It is hair raising. And in fact, maybe even people might like lose hair afterwards, like a telogen effluvium because they're so sick. Speaking of hair loss, thank oh, you. Oh, what for a the, beautiful segue. Thank you for the assist. It was a very nice set, like how they do in volleyball. I am going to review an excellent article, which is an update on trichoscopy, integration of the terminology by systematic approach, and a proposal for a diagnostic flowchart. This is a fantastic article that's out of the Japanese Dermatologic Association, and it's published here in the Journal of Dermatology. Its authors are Misaki um, Kinoshita Ise, and then Muskan Sachdeva. So these um, researchers are out of the Department of Dermatology in Tokyo, as well as in our Ontario, Canada, which is kind of cool. So this is a very nice article that's going to look over the different terms that are used in trichoscopy and attempt to unite them, as well as to give some indicator of how useful they are in the diagnosis of different kinds of alopecia. I'm very impressed with the authors of this study because they came at this from an evidence-based approach and actually used statistical analysis in a way that I don't think it's commonly used. So in this endeavor, they actually reviewed 59 articles. They were able to identify six 6,045 patients that had trichoscopic findings sort of presented and then associated with a specific diagnosis. Of those 6,000-ish patients, about 4,000 and a half of them had non-cicatricial alopecia with the most common diagnosis being alopecia areata followed by androgenetic alopecia, not a big surprise there, but other types of non-scarring alopecia is also well represented, including telogen effluvium and trichotillomania. And then 1,590 cases of cicatricial alopecia with trichoscopic findings, including um, discoid lupus, lichen planus, lichen planopilaris, um, funeral fibrosing alopecia, CCCA, and folliculitis calvin's dissecting cellulitis. They also talk about tinea, corp- tinea capitis. It falls into their cicatricial kind of diagram. Um, just remembering that this, the hair loss from tinea uh, capitis can have some scarring associated, but patients can also have an excellent recovery. So... One of the problems we run into trichoscopy is a similar thing we run into in dermoscopy, which is it's a highly visual field that came to the fore in dermatology in a less than completely organized fashion. So a lot of people were using these tools and describing what they saw using what's often referred to as metaphoric language, which means they're going to say, this looks like a corkscrew, or this one looks like a P or whatever. They find a visual cue that corresponds to something that they're seeing and make an analogy to it. That's one way it's described. Other ways are strictly um, descriptive, like circle hair. So a a hair that is in a circle is sometimes called a circle hair. Dermatologists do this all the time, probably Mm -hmm. because we're just all visual in general. There's like strawberries and cream and snail tracking and all sorts of foods are ruined. The hard thing with trichoscopy is because there's so many different kinds of language that are used, it can be difficult to do a search like this because the terms are not standardized, which limits our ability to do research. And it also can be confusing for the users. I remember when I was a little baby dermoscopist learning about maple leaf areas and being like, what does that even mean? You know, And understanding finally what it means. And they do something I like, which is they correlate it with the pathophysiology. I actually teach dermoscopy by correlating with the dermatopathology, but I am a dermatopathologist. That's my bias that I bring into it. Uh, but they, I think, did a lovely job with this to try to put these things into some kind of a review. So to achieve this, they categorized the findings into five subcategories that has good logic to it. So 
hair shaft findings, follicular findings, perifollicular findings, scalp findings, hair distribution and pattern abnormalities. So those are their five subgroups. They then were able to calculate sensitivities and the positive predictive values of these findings relative to different diagnoses of different types of alopecia, which I thought was really pretty cool. Um, they have a really useful table. So there's a lot of things that would be good things to kind of keep for your reference in this article. Um, one of them is their table that describes the different trichoscopic terms, such as broken hairs, um, black dots, vellus hairs, exclamation mark hairs, things like that. And then they line them up with a definition of what that thing is. And then they have a column for the reported disease number of sources. So how many cases of alopecia areata corresponded to these broken hairs versus how many cases of trichotillomania. And then they look at the synonyms, the words that are similarly used in the literature and how to kind of unify this, this wording. Now that table is all by itself um, three pages long. So I'm not going to go through it individually, but I do think it's a very good reference and I'll highlight some high frequency usable findings. They also um, have a super fun diagram here. Oh, the diagram is amazing. So they have a fantastic diagram and we always contact the authors of these articles. When we contact these authors, Dr. Um, Johnson, might we ask them if we could include their um, diagram for educational purposes or some variant of it? For We Dermosphere? might. We can at least nominate it for a Dermy Award. Definitely on the short list for that because this is a fabulous um, figure. So let's go through some of the things a little bit more specifically. First of all, the clarification of synonyms, I think, is important. Um, of these terms that they looked at, these 43 independent terms, 18 of them didn't have any synonyms, but 25 of them had at least one synonym, and some of them had up to seven synonyms. So, you know, some unification of this will help in the discussion. It'll help facilitate discussion and research in this field to provide some unification. Another type of confusion can come in from the way the English language is built. So there are things that overlap in terms of similar words, but might not actually mean the same thing. And there are things that are representing similar findings. Um, so we'll kind of go over some of those here in a second. So starting on this like little table, I think some of the more um, useful things to bring forward include their kind of discussion on exclamation mark hairs. And so these have different synonyms, including tapering hairs, micro exclamation mark, exclamation mark hair. These are basically shorter hairs that have a thinner proximal shaft in typically the process of alopecia areata because the inflammatory assault is making that hair shaft less robust. So it's actually thinner towards the scalp as it is emerging because it's actively being inflamed. Now, related to but not identical to this is a fun phrase that I actually had to do a little deep dive on called cutability hairs. Have you ever heard of cutability hairs, Luke? Not before reading this article, and I tried to figure out what it meant as well. Let's see if we found the same thing. I think we may have. So cutability hairs, these are longer hairs with tapered proximal shafts, and the name itself has kind of a hilarious history. So an article written by Rodrigo uh, Pirmez, who did a very nice kind of review of why this is called this, showed that the name cutability actually came from the ability of a hair to sort of bend like a coude catheter. Um, so if you remember way back to before you were a dermatologist and you ever held a coude catheter in your hand, a coude catheter is a catheter that has like a bend at the end and it's a little rigid and they're useful for patients that have like prostate hypertrophy. So the name cutability is actually 
got a really cute history. The author of one of the papers first describing this phenomenon, and he was describing the clinical phenomenon where you push on a hair that has alopecia areata, where it's thin proximally, closer to the scalp. And if you push on that hair, the thinner portion tends to bend because it's not as robust of a hair shaft. And that sort of confirms that you have proximal thinning, which might relate to inflammatory salt. So, so the person the hair has cutability. Cutability. It can bend so. like a coude. Like a coude. Yes. So Schuster is the person who first discovered this and reported on it in 1984. And he called it that somewhat in homage to this paper out of Cardiff, England, a um, student run magazine called The Leech, of all things, where they published several fake medical biographies as a joke. And one of the ones that they published was on Emile Coudet, who theoretically in their fake version of history had created the Coudet catheter. Now, the reason that this is, you know, funny is that this got accidentally taken seriously. So this person's information of this fake autobiography got included in a textbook about surgery called A Short Practice of Surgery in its 11th edition. Now, the word Coudet actually comes from the French word Coudet, which means if you're using it as an adjective, it means bent. If you're using it as a noun, it means elbow. So the coup de catheter is actually named after the shape of the catheter in the French language, not after a human person. But I think that's kind of adorable that that kind of prank got carried forward so much. So anyway, you are the dermatologic historian here on the show, <laughs> Michelle. Was it's good. just fun. It's really fun. So I love that it's something named about a prank. Um, so anyway, cutability hairs, they're basically longer exclamation point hairs, and they have that finding that you push on the hair and it bends a little bit. Yeah, so for things like alopecia areata, they had a couple of other things they brought forward, like the yellow dots, which can occur, which is basically keratin debris filling up the empty hair follicle orifice. And they talk about, um, you know, different kinds of broken hairs you can see in things like tinea corporis and, sorry, tinea capitis. So after that table, which they do a very nice job of sort of summarizing the findings and finding unifying wording for, they have this excellent diagram, which we will either reproduce with their permission, or maybe I'll just have to show examples of some of these findings, but I think they're excellent. And it has a very nice illustration of things that are similar to each other and terminology that overlaps. So like the V sign, for example, is two hairs coming out of the same follicular orifice that are broken at the same length. This is a finding you tend to see in things like trichotillosis because the patient is externally manipulating the hair, but it can happen sometimes in alopecia areata. They have great um, also illustrations of the different kinds of dots you can see on the scalp. And they had a very good discussion on something that's sometimes called hair powder um, versus dirty dots. So hair powder is a finding you see in trichotillosis and sometimes alopecia areata. In pigmented hairs, some of the pigment gets stuck in the dermis when the hairs are damaged, and it looks kind of like an accidental tattoo, like a very tiny accidental tattoo. So that's like the hair dust. Now, the dirty dots is like environmental deposits. So it can be like the hair powders that people use as camouflage, but it can also be like particulates that get stuck on the scalp. And you see those under different circumstances. So those are things that can kind of overlap but are similar. I think and if you the, thought the awesome table stopped there, boy, would you be wrong. Because the, there's figures. And the authors went the extra mile and calculated the sensitivity and positive predictive value of each of these trichoscopic findings in various diseases. And they're and they, on a big table. And they also present a beautiful algorithm um, that addresses one of the key pitfalls in treating hair loss, which I'll talk about here in a second. They also have excellent photograph um, kind of demonstrations of each one of these findings so that you're not sitting there wondering, well, what is a corkscrew versus a curled hair versus a coiled hair? So they can show you these different pictures. The um, table that has the different... 
sensitivities and positive predictive values, I think is very useful. That is their table three. And you can see that there are some findings that are very highly indicative of a specific diagnosis. For example, the yellow dots of alopecia areata having like 64% sensitivity and 100% positive predictive value, pretty darn good. Um, when you're looking at androgenetic alopecia, the hair diameter diversity. So some people also refer to this as hair shaft thickness heterogeneity, having 77% sensitivity and um, having, you know, also very good positive predictive value. And they were able to also assess these across multiple different findings. They were able to determine that um, trichoscopy is very useful for the assessment of alopecia areata, androgenetic alopecia, certain kinds of inflammatory hair loss, including like in plano pilaris. It is less useful for things like telogen effluvium. Um, telogen effluvium is a diagnosis of exclusion with trichoscopy, and it doesn't necessarily have very specific findings. So often clinical correlation is going to be more beneficial in the assessment of this particular condition. But I also really like the fact that they emphasize that often two patterns of hair loss exist, and I find this in my clinical practice as well. So patients will often have a background simmering chronic hair loss, like androgenetic alopecia, but then they get hit with the telogen effluvium or they get hit with alopecia areata, or they have a, a cicatricial alopecia on top of this very common other type of alopecia. So patients can have two. And in my practice, I also, I often call this something plus. So I call it like alopecia areata plus androgenetic. The key to that is you have to treat and address both types of hair loss or else the patient will not necessarily be treated to the greatest potential, but also might not be satisfied with their treatment. So the two-step approach that they advocate for their algorithm is to go through with your most prominent finding, make that diagnosis, and then go back and look and make sure you didn't miss any other secondary diagnosis. And the most common secondary diagnosis that there would be, of course, would be androgenetic alopecia. Which is the fancy term for male or female pattern hair loss. Yeah. And the most common kind of hair loss in um, in adults. But I think that the unification of the language is very useful and I do think that the algorithm is very helpful. So just briefly, the best findings for each condition. So for alopecia areata, the leading findings were yellow dots, short vellus hairs, and black dots for sensitivity. Cootability hairs, so those little compressible ones that bend at the point of thinning of the hair shaft proximally related to the inflammatory insult. Pole pincus constriction, which is a somewhat related phenomenon. Uh, pigtail tears and exclamation mark hairs were very useful findings for alopecia areata. For androgenetic alopecia, hair shaft thickness heterogeneity or hair shaft diameter diversity was one of the best findings, as was peripylar sign, brown peripylar sign, which we feel reflects the chronic subacute inflammation that can accompany androgenetic alopecia, and then the honeycomb pigment um, pattern. They also talked about focal atrichia, which is hair orifices that are empty and hidden hairs, which are hairs that actually kind of get stuck growing a little bit under the stratum corneum and lose their pigmentation. So they look transparent. They're actually kind of striking when you see them. Uh, for trichotillomania, broken hairs, of course, are some of the most um, commonly identified findings, which makes sense. Uh, flame hairs is another nice finding, which they demonstrate very beautifully in their, in their um, diagram. These are hairs that sort of have a fading end and it has to do with the way the hair is often twisted and then pulled, fracturing it and creating sort of this thinning and sort of dissipating um, end to, to these hairs. And then with lichen planopilaris, perifollicular scale, absence of follicular opening, and perifollicular erythema. 
Sometimes you also may see blue-gray dots in LPP, which is reflective of the fact that this is a interface dermatitis, so you're dropping pigments into the dermis. So you're seeing the blue-gray dots just like you would in a lesion of lichen planus. For FFA, frontal fibrosing alopecia, similarly, perifollicular scale, absence of follicular opening and perifollicular erythema were the most helpful. For CCCA, which isn't terribly well represented in this study or many studies, I think CCCA is a neglected area of um, trichoscopy and dermatologic publication in general. It's starting to get more attention, but it has been relatively neglected. They only had 51 cases of CCCA out of their 6,045 cases, um, so it wasn't terribly well represented, but that is not uncommon in the literature. Honeycomb pigment pattern has been one of the things that's been best identified with that, mostly because these are typically patients with type 3, 4, 5, or 6 skin, and it has an area of thinning of the, of the hair, which may cause a little bit of darkening of the pigmentation related to sun exposure. Perifollicular erythema can also be seen as can um, perifollicular whitish halo, which relates to the fibrosis that can occur in CCCA. For DLE, the findings included telangiectasia, reflective of the interface dermatitis and follicular keratotic plugging. And then for folliculitis to Calvin's, follicular pustules, dissecting cellulitis, absence of follicular openings, black dots, and follicular pustules. Very useful. And then there's been whole articles on the use of trichoscopy in tinea capitis, so I'll defer that kind of back to a previous episode. But I do think this is an excellent article. If you treat hair loss patients, I think I would put this algorithm on your wall or wherever you keep your useful articles, and then the um, figures and images are exemplary. Yeah, it's a really nice resource for this stuff. As a reminder, sensitivity tends to rule things out. So sometimes we say snout to try to remember that. Sensitivity rules it out. So for example, if yellow dots have a sensitivity of 64% for alopecia areata, and you think something's alopecia areata, and you look at the scalp with your dermatoscope and you don't see yellow dots, you might want to rethink it because yellow dots are pretty sensitive for picking up alopecia areata. If you do see yellow dots, it doesn't mean it is alopecia areata. It could be some other cause of hair loss that has yellow dots. And that's why you need things like the positive predictive value, which give you an idea of how likely it is that it actually is that disease if you see the finding. So if cutability hairs have a 100% positive predictive value for alopecia areata and you find a cutability hair, bam, alopecia areata. <laughs> Assuming it really does have a 100% positive predictive value. Now, remember, this is all subject to the vagaries of the literature and what people choose to report and stuff like that. But I think it's helpful to remember those different statistics. Well, Michelle, I know you've got to leave to the airport pretty soon, so maybe we've got time for one more. What do you think? I think we do. All right. So let me do our next in the mini-series of alternatives for allergens in the allergic contact dermatitis series. As per usual, Michelle will give us an excellent off-the-top-of-her-head theme song for this mini-series. Allergen alternatives. Woo! I could go on. It gets dirty, though. Go ahead. All right. We won't go on, then, for sure. <laughs> Uh, the authors include Andrew Shaman and Rob Shaver. This is number three in our mini-series on this. And as we said before, this was a CertLink article. So if you use CertLink to get recertified, you'll find this article on their website. So today I want to talk about textiles and adhesives. And this is, again, allergic contact dermatitis. So textiles is like cloth, like clothing and potentially upholstered furniture and stuff. You can be allergic to them. Sorry. But you still have to wear clothes. 
The allergies are often to dyes, especially to a particular dye called Disperse Blue, which is found in dark colored garments like black and navy blue. They say white is the safest choice. Interestingly, the allergic contact dermatitis reaction to this Disperse Blue dye can be pigmented purpura. So remember, pigmented purpura is something we see with like Schamberg's dermatitis, that cayenne pepper appearance. You might want to think about this textile dye reaction potentially and they point out that dispersed dyes are more color fast on nylon so Mm -hmm. if somebody wears a lot of nylon clothing they're less likely to develop an allergy or have their underlying allergy become manifest though if they're particularly sensitive to it or they're particularly sweaty or tight or it lasts for a long time then you can get it even from nylon The allergic contact dermatitis to clothing tends to appear in areas where you are sweaty or you have tight clothing like around the axillae, but not the axillary vault itself. Remember, most of our shirts don't actually touch our axillary vault. So if you see ration there, it's probably more likely if it's going to be ACD related to their deodorant or something. The waistband, the medial thighs, you know, places where it's tight, places where it's sweaty. If somebody is allergic to the upholstery on their car seat or their couch or something, then it's going to be in different areas. It's going to be the exposed areas that touch those things, like their extensor forearms and their posterior legs. And some textiles can also release formaldehyde. So you have to think about formaldehyde allergy as well. In Europe, apparently, there's this certification. I don't know how to pronounce it. Oecotex, perhaps? Hmm, Capital O, lowercase E-K-O, hyphen T-E-X. Do you know anything about it being in Texas? No! Oecotext? Oecotext. It certifies fabrics that release formaldehyde only minimally and are safer alternatives. It's a European thing, but you can still Google it or look it up on Amazon if you happen to be somebody who's allergic to formaldehyde or have a patient who is and can find some clothing that are good alternatives. And like the trichoscopy article, this article is also full of giant tables, full of useful reference information. So if somebody's allergic to something or other, there's a good chance there's a table in here that shows you some safe alternatives. And as we previously discussed, you can also use the um, North American Contact Dermatitis group to, they've got a service where they, you can plug in what your patient's allergic to and they'll print out safe alternatives. So if you're allergic to some kind of shoe issue, like your patient's allergic to the shoes you can use patch testing to figure out if it's like the adhesives or the dyes or the leather or whatever anyway there's a big table of shoes in here that says which of these substances are they allergic to here are some options that they could wear instead looks like crocs are a good choice for a lot of people which explains why i have lots of people coming (laughs) in wearing sequin crocs and sandals probably just trying to avoid their allergic contact dermatitis I mean, you know what's cool is this Oecotex thing is that they actually class out the products as items for babies and infants, which is class one. Class two is items with direct, prolonged, large area skin contact. Um, Class three is textiles without or with little skin contact. And then class four is furnishing materials for decorative purposes, like curtains or table linens or carpets. It's very interesting. I'm glad the service is out there. Mm Mm-hmm. Let's talk about adhesives. Kind of a sticky situation. (laughs) So if you are allergic to an adhesive, there's a whole big group of things within the adhesive that you might actually be allergic to, such as, this might be like board stuff, colophony, epoxy, resin, ethyl acrylate, methyl methacrylate, anything with acrylate in the name, basically, various rubber allergens, para-tertiary butyl phenol, formaldehyde resin, 
And many of these adhesives also contain methyl chloroisothiazolinone. So beware, for example, of slime. Mm-hmm. Remember, kids make oh slime. Oh my god, I have At seen a lot of problems to. with this. Yeah, I feel like it's died down over the past few years. It's a little less popular than it used to be. I think they're still doing it, but you know, maybe so many people got contact dermatitis. I saw a lot of bad contact derm. I was also worried about bacteria living on it because, you know, it's a lot of hands. That makes sense. So I definitely saw a handful of nah. slime dermatitis cases when I was in fellowship, but that was three or four years ago now. I haven't seen much of it here. Um, but maybe it's because of this methyl isothiazolinone or methyl chloroisothiazolinone that's present in some of the adhesives and the glues and sticky junk that kids put in there to make the slime. Sometimes it's hard to find out what the ingredients are in some particular adhesive, especially if you're, you know, you're allergic to cyanoacrylates and you're like, well, I got to glue this wood together. What am I supposed to do? Interestingly, there is a the government can help. I know, surprising, the government. So there's a U.S. National Library of Medicine that has a household product database, and you can access it online, householdproducts.nlm.nih.gov, that can give you some of the ingredients. And as before, there's a big table of alternatives to, for example, household glues, to bandages, to dental products, even to ECG monitor leads. Wow. For bandages, they say the newer silicone-based products are probably the safest, so I've been looking for a particular product to recommend to people who are like, oh, I can't wear this bandage because it's I'm allergic to it. I usually say, well, try like a fabric bandage. They're supposed to be better or just gauze and medical tape, which I also think are still decent options. But one particular brand they have here is Curad. They have a product called Truly Ouchless Flexible Fabric Bandages. Hmm. Hashtag not sponsored. <laughs> Finally, if you like fake nails and are allergic to acrylates, you're probably just out of luck. Sorry, yeah. all the acrylates cross-react. There's not really an alternative. Just yeah. use nail polish. Yeah, and you're, I think you're more likely to be sensitized if you've like worked as a nail technician or if you've been a person who's gotten a lot of the acrylic nails. Um, dental technicians, because they'll make sometimes dental acrylics also, I think, are at higher risk. Well, that's all I wanted to talk about from this article today. We will finish it up next time, and we'll talk about some other stuff next time. But we've got to get Michelle off to the mighty Lubbock International Airport (laughs) so she can fly out and go to her friend's wedding. Thanks so much for hanging out with us today, guys. Come see Michelle at the AAD and swing by the Top Derm booth and participate in the Dermosphere Challenge and see if you can be a hero like Michelle. Or Luke, you have, I don't know, when do we get to unveil the superhero portrait? It is really nice. They did a great job. I'm very impressed with the graphic artists. It should be available by the time this episode is live. Very exciting. So let's remember what we learned today. We learned about dress slash dish and how it can potentially progress to autoimmune disease and some risk factors that could be related. We learned about all kind of trichoscopy findings and learned that you should keep this article around. And we learned about some alternative allergens if you are allergic to some textiles or adhesives. Thanks, of course, to our institutions. Thanks to the University of Utah for supporting the podcast. By the way, the University of Utah Department of Dermatology is an awesome place to work. Salt Lake City is a great place to live. And there's a new children's hospital being built in this valley, so we could really use some more pediatric dermatologists. So run down one of our dermatology faculty at the AAD and be like, hey, I'm a pediatric dermatologist. I want to come work at the U of U, and they will hand you one of the contracts. I'm sure they're all carrying around in their back pocket, and we can get you started right away. Thanks also to Texas Tech for lending us Michelle. 
Texas Tech is also a great place to work, and we would also love to have anybody who's interested in living in beautiful, sunny Lubbock, Texas. Um, if you like Buddy Holly, it's a great place to live. There's lots of friendly people and the low cost of living. So yeah, find me for that, or pens, or um, superhero competition, or I will just say hello, give you a high five. But you mentioned the Buddy Holly thing several times. There's mm-hmm. more to Lubbock than just Buddy Holly. I lived That's there for true. three years. Like, there's some cool stuff there. There's wineries around, mm-hmm. and it's like a super cheap cost of living. Super easy to get around town. You never drive more than 20 minutes to get anywhere. There's never, never any trouble parking. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a chill place. It is. It's a cool place to live. Thanks to our medical students, Ryan Carlisle and Morgan Dykeman, who are members of Team Dermosphere and keep our social media accounts buzzing along. Yes, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find us on our website, dermospherepodcast.com, which has our entire archive as well as links to all the original articles and is a great way to get in touch with us. You can also find us on our other podcast. It's a pretty cool podcast. It's called SkinCast. It is directed at lay people. It's shorter. It's about 15 minutes to 20 minutes per episode. And we just teach people how to take the very best care of the skin they're in. Bon voyage, Michelle. And we will see you guys next time.